presented by Pharma. Hey, good morning, Playbookers. I'm Raghub Manavalan. It's Monday. Congress is back in session this week. We'll tell you what to watch for. It's our Politico Playbook Daily Briefing. Team Playbook is keeping our eyes on three big things this week when senators return this afternoon. One, the brewing Manchin-Sanders face-off. Senator Joe Manchin was promised an energy-permitting reform bill as part of the deal to pass the Inflation Reduction Act last month. Biden signed off on it. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said last week it'll be attached to the bill to fund the government through mid-December. Key Democratic climate hawks, such as Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz, have endorsed that plan. But nobody consulted Bernie Sanders, who last week attacked the so-called side deal that the fossil fuel industry is pushing to make it easier for them to pollute the environment and destroy the planet. The continuing resolution needs to pass by the end of the month. 2. The Status of the Marriage Bill Senators Tammy Baldwin, Susan Collins, and Kirsten Sinema are leading the negotiations. Schumer World will be looking for signs of Republican support, especially after Tuesday's GOP lunch, where it is sure to be discussed. Don't expect quick action this week. Per a Demid who told us, the earliest Schumer could file cloture on a marriage agreement would be the end of the week, when the Senate finishes processing the circuit court judges currently in the queue. And three, how will the House handle the new Taiwan bill? On Wednesday, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is going ahead with the markup of the Taiwan Policy Act, which its authors call a comprehensive overhaul of Taiwan policy that would increase military support and strengthen the U.S. ties to the island. A recent delay in the markup gave the White House some time to shape the bill, which China sees as an affront to the One China policy. We'll be looking to see how hawkish the final version is and how the White House and Schumer respond to it. The House is back on Tuesday. A few things to watch. One, shutdown politics. It is that time of the year again. There's little incentive for any congressional faction to mess around with a shutdown. But as the Manchin-Sanders drama makes clear, there will be some brinksmanship, and not just from the minority, before the continuing resolution clears. Two, will a policing bill ever materialize? In a Dear Colleague letter to House colleagues outlining September priorities, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer was noncommittal. He had this to say, the House will also be ready to consider legislation supporting law enforcement and addressing a rise in crime this legislative work period whenever work is completed on readying bills for the floor. And three, Hoyer also said that Dems will take up a trio of messaging uh, government reform bills that he says are meant to prevent the kind of abuses of office and lack of transparency that were rampant under the previous administration and protect the nonpartisan, merit-based nature of our federal civil service. New York Magazine reporter and former Politico, Gabriel De Benedetti's new book, The Long Alliance, comes out on Tuesday. In it, he explores the complex and, as he puts it, misunderstood relationship between President Biden and former President Barack Obama. Playbook's very own Eugene Daniels had the chance to chat with Gabriel over the phone recently about his new book and why he wanted to write it. Hey, Eugene, how's it going? Hey, Gabe, it's going well. How are you? I am okay. Uh, very happy to, to be chatting. Uh, fun times <laughs> these days. Rewind with me a few years ago when you decided to do this book. Why this book? I decided to do this shortly after... Biden was finally declared the winner of the election. And it was because I started to notice a certain line of commentary in the coverage that really got to me because it was so wrong. And the commentary was that Biden would represent a third Obama term, that this would be some sort of restoration. 
of the Obama years. And the reason that I knew it was wrong is I'd been talking to people who were close to Biden, who, you know, certainly acknowledged that he had a lot of staffers in common with Obama. He relied a lot on, you know, the Obama experience, thought about it all the time, but that he didn't think of his own uh, tenure as Obama, you know, years uh, 9, 10, 11, and 12, and that he had a lot of other things that he wanted to do. And in fact, that he thought about the world very differently than Obama at times. And then most importantly, perhaps, that their relationship was simply not the like simple best friendship that the you know public narrative around it suggests. And as those stories kept coming, which, you know, I understood why they were coming, but I but I was not thrilled to see them keep coming. It became clear to me that the true story of this relationship needed to be told because it shaped so much of the world around us. Um, you know, it is by far the closest relationship between a president and vice president or a president and former president, you know, that we have in modern, <laughs> in modern times, but it's also really complicated. You know, I think an important way to think about this um, is they are, uh, I'm trying to come up with the right words for it. You know, they are as close as, as they can, po- as you can possibly have for, for politicians, but how many, you know, friends do you have who are 19 years younger than you and were your boss and just come from a different <laughs> world and culture and background entirely and spent, you know, spent 40 years before you came on the scene thinking they were going to be president. I mean, it's just not a, a thing. Well, anyway, you understand the dynamic. It's, it's, they're two <laughs> very different men. Yeah. Zero, because I don't, I, you know, don't hang out with people. Right. My, my junior. Yeah. Um, and neither <laughs> did Joe Biden until Barack Obama came on the scene. Yeah. Yeah. I, when you, when you think of, um, like your book, and, and the research that you've done, what are the big moments that really give us, um, and whether those are frustrations, intention points, and you mentioned 2016, but what are those big moments in this relationship that give people a sense of it at its, at its truest sense? I think 2016 is really important to understand because it is an inflection point in which, yes, they're as close as they're going to be, but it's also a very painful moment for both of them as Obama essentially chooses Hillary Clinton and chooses to support her, even though there was a lot going on in the world at the time. Um, But there are other moments that I think can be pretty instructive too. One that I like to think about uh, as, as, as interesting for the form and formative for the relationship is when they were debating in 2009, the, you know, what to do with the future of the war in Afghanistan. Uh, They disagreed a lot. Biden was very skeptical of the war effort, or rather of the uh, attempts by military leaders to escalate the war effort. He thought that Obama was uh, being too too easy to easily influenced by the generals. Um, But Obama and Biden, that was where they worked out a lot of their relationship. Obama asked Biden to really pressure test every debate that they were having. Um, And, you know, even when it became annoying, he asked Biden to keep going. And that was something that ended up being extremely useful for both of them in, you know, stretching the terms of the debate. And so they could get on each other's nerves. They could be questioning each other's judgment. But at the end of the day, they were working hand in hand and very strategically. Um, But, you know, that has the relationship. One of the things that I think back on a lot is that it's just fluctuated wildly over time. Um, there are times when they look inseparable and there are times when they're not talking at all. And the Trump era is really interesting. They, they for a while talked about Trump differently. Obama came around to the idea that Trump was this product of the warping of the Republican party over many years and of conservatism and of, you know, some of the um, darker strains in that, in that movement. Uh, Biden for a long time really relied on the idea that Biden, that uh, Trump was an aberration. They didn't 
talk about this one-on-one. They didn't ever have a disagreement or fight about it, but it was sort of a definitive disagreement uh, when you think about what was going on in the world. What does the relationship look like post um, administration? So, you know, everyone walks out of the White House on the 20th of January, 2017. What does that relationship look like then? And when it's very clear that, you know, Biden is a little perturbed, frustrated, saddened, disappointed that a little, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't seem it. And Obama was, you know, even unspokenly all for Hillary running, you know, and Biden not in 2016. So how do they repair that relationship? Or does, does that tear um, kind of explain where they are now? That was a really difficult time for both of them. There's no easy short answer to it. But an easy way to think about it is Biden spends a few weeks, certainly, if not longer than that, after the election of 2016, going around quietly saying to people that he trusts, you know, not saying this publicly, you know, uh, Clinton was the wrong elect, wrong candidate for this time. If I if I could have run, uh, I would have. Um, you know, he doesn't say he wishes he had because his personal circumstances wouldn't have allowed that. But there, you know, the upshot to people who are close to him is pretty clear. He still can't believe that Obama, but more to the point, the people around Obama because Biden is not very good at um, blaming Obama directly for things because he does really like the guy, um, but he likes to blame his aides for things. Um, He can't believe that they dissuaded him from running in 2016 or more to the point that they pushed Clinton towards it and helped her so much. So, you know, after office, of course, Obama is sort of semi-famously spends a lot of time, you know, disappearing from public eye, but thinking about what it means that Trump was elected. You saw some of this, his wrestling with this in his book, although not so explicitly because it hasn't covered the Trump years yet, his memoirs. But he's talked a little bit about this, too, the idea that, you know, he was ahead of his time or that he missed a lot of what was going on in the country because he was focused on other things. He's doing a lot of introspection. They're not talking a ton. They do catch up occasionally, uh, mostly about family things. You know, Obama pops into a Bo Biden Foundation fundraiser. They talk about how their kids and grandkids are doing. But it takes a long time for them to really get back into a regular rhythm. And that's the run-up to the 2020 election. But even then, it looks very little like it did at its highest points, because then you had Obama essentially trying to figure out how serious Biden was about running in 2020. He wasn't convinced it was a great idea, though he wasn't against it necessarily. Um, And he's, you know, is trying to figure out how to make sure that Biden doesn't get hurt once again. So by definition, it's going to be a pretty uncomfortable set of conversations. Um, it took a very long time for them to get to something back to normal. And nowadays, you know, they talk every few weeks, maybe once a month. There's no regular schedule. But one thing that's interesting is just like the good old days, when they're on the phone together, there's no staffers on the phone. You know, the only readouts you're going to get from it are if you get it second or third hand from someone who heard it from someone who Obama or Biden talked to. They're still very secretive. Um, and it's just generalized advice as far as we Here's what's up in Washington today, starting with the White House. At 9.40 a.m. Eastern, President Joe Biden will leave the White House, arriving in Boston at 11.20. There, he'll speak at Logan Airport about the bipartisan infrastructure law. At 4 p.m., Biden will deliver remarks on cancer moonshot at the John F. Kennedy Library and Museum. At 6 p.m., Biden will take part in a DNC reception and will head back to the White House. Vice President Kamala Harris will meet with civil and reproductive rights leaders at 5 p.m. to talk about reproductive justice. The Senate will meet at 3 p.m. The House is out today. 
Here's what else is on the calendar this week. Today, former President Donald Trump faces a 10 a.m. deadline to respond to DOJ's appeal of Judge Eileen Cannon's special master order. On Tuesday, August consumer price index data is released and the White House hosts an event celebrating the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. The House returns for votes in its primary day in Delaware, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. On Wednesday, Biden travels to Michigan for the Detroit Auto Show, and on Saturday, the Bidens head to the UK ahead of Queen Elizabeth's funeral. All right, for more news on what's breaking in DC right now, subscribe to the Playbook newsletter. That's at politico.com playbook. Our music is composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Raghu Munavalan. Have a good week. We'll see you first thing tomorrow morning. Did you know 39% of insured Americans say they don't understand what's covered by their insurance? Health insurance coverage should be predictable and transparent, and insured Americans agree. Learn more from our latest patient experience survey report at pharma.org.